Welcome to Sovereign Grace. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 as we continue in this third sermon in Genesis and walk through verse 2 today. Genesis 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks for your word, for the truth that you have revealed here about the work of creation, the creation of our triune Lord, whom we trust, whom we worship, who created all things, and who has redeemed us in Christ. We pray that we would be attentive to your word, that we would understand it, that your spirit would give us that understanding, and that we would rejoice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's something about our humanity, something about what we are as humans, that tends to give rise to literature and art and poetry and song. Whether it's at a wedding or a funeral, a graduation or a big game, we are people who sing. So what is it about our humanity that expresses itself in art and poetry and music? Why are we artistic and literary and poetic and singing creatures? Throughout history, we're a people who compose poetry, songs, and great works of art and literature. But why? Why are we that way? I want to sort of dig into that in a couple of levels here. I think the simple answer to that question is found in the word beauty. But here's the question. What is it about humans that we find it so necessary to express, to admire, to revel in beauty? And I think the answer to that is simply it's because we're made in the image of God. We're made in his image. God is glorious. He is magnificent in beauty. He has ordered all things by distinction and done so with a kind of harmony that makes them beautiful. He spreads his beauty across the heavens and the earth in all his works. Thus we seek after and love that which is beautiful. All his works are beautiful. Thus as image bearers, we pursue what is beautiful. I think that's some answer to why God gave us the gift of artists and poets and musicians. The reason we have historically encouraged music and art and education is because in that sense it makes us more human. Why? Because God is gloriously beautiful in all his works and music and art are capable of capturing that beauty and lifting our souls in a manner that makes us more truly human, that makes us more true image bearers. Thus when we question how an art class or a poetry assignment or a music class helps prepare someone for the working world, for employment, we sort of betray our own misunderstanding of our humanity as we're created to be image bearers of God and not merely products for the marketplace. You understand that? You don't educate your children so they can be sold to the marketplace. They aren't wares. That's why the loss of music and art and poetry and education, great literature, is a dehumanizing sort of loss. And this morning I want to consider the beauty of God in all his works. Because I said we're image bearers of God, which we'll get to later in Genesis 1. But I want to talk about the God whose image we bear. He is a God of order, a God of harmony, a God of goodness and beauty. And we'll consider him by looking at Genesis 1-2. Now, I really have three questions for us today as we consider God and his creation. The first question is, 
What was the initial state of creation? In what state do we initially find creation? The second question is, what was God doing in the initial state of creation? What was his work in the initial state of creation? And third, and it's going to sound completely unrelated, but I'll get there. By way of application, I want to ask more deeply, why are we creatures who sing? So let's look at the first question. What was the initial state of creation? Look at Genesis 1.1. These seven Hebrew words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I told you before, this is a Hebrew merism. It's the heavens and the earth are like two poles that account for all things. The heavens and the earth, everything. In the beginning, God created all things that came to be. We're also told the initial state of creation in the beginning. Look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. We're given three descriptions of the creation. Focus really on the earth, but not exclusively there. We get three descriptions of creation at the beginning of creation. Here are the three descriptions. It was without form, it was void, and it was covered by some kind of watery darkness. Without form, void, covered by some kind of watery darkness. What does all that mean? Let's just take one by one. Form, void, watery darkness. To be without form does not mean it was absent of any form whatsoever. It's a manner of saying it was wilderness. Or maybe in a word that will help you a little bit more, it was uninhabitable. Nothing could live there. To be void does not mean it was absent of any material at all. It wasn't void of any material. It's a manner of saying something like it's uninhabited. So it was uninhabitable and it was uninhabited. It was unadorned. It was without any living things. Like, and why I say that, it's like plants and animals. Matthew Poole, he was a Puritan commentator, describes this well when he said, to be without form and void is to be without order and beauty and without furniture and use. It's like a creation that's not yet furnished. Now, these Hebrew words, tohu, wilderness, and vohu, uninhabited, or uninhabitable and uninhabited, are used together in two other texts in Scripture. These terms are even paired in one of those texts with the notion of darkness. So this phrase, tohu vavohu, is used again and paired with the notion of darkness. The first text I want to look at in the use of these words is, you know, a text on judgment. So look at Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 23. It's a text on judgment. Jeremiah is just about past the halfway mark of your Bible. It's an Old Testament prophet, one of the major prophets, one of the larger prophetic books. Jeremiah chapter 4, God is judging, just so you know, the southern kingdom of Judah. If you remember, the nation of Israel at the point of kings splits into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel has been carried off by the Assyrians under judgment. And the southern kingdom of Judah which lasts about 100 years longer, somewhere around there, is about to be carried off and then is carried off by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar about 100 years later. Also in judgment for their sin, for their lawlessness, for the violation of the commands of the Mosaic Covenant. And this word of judgment comes upon them. And look at verse 23 of Jeremiah 4. I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void. It was uninhabitable and uninhabited or It was wilderness, and there were no living things there. And to the heavens, notice the next phrase, and they had no light. It was darkness. What's interesting is that Jeremiah 
by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is speaking about judgment in the terms of rolling back the order and beauty of creation. It's a judgment of decreation. He's going to take us from creation that is ordered and beautiful, cosmos. He's going to take us to a state of chaos due to sin. This chaos in Jeremiah 4, 23 is speaking of judgment. It's speaking of God's curse upon the land, which he promises at the end of Leviticus. Further, we note in Genesis 1-2 that not only is there a formlessness and void and darkness, we notice in Genesis 1-2 that there is a watery covering and darkness was over the face of the deep. So not only is this scene dark in Genesis 1-2, uninhabitable and uninhabited, but it has a watery covering. Now we also see that whenever scripture mentions water covering the earth, it's a kind of scene of judgment. So think of Genesis chapter 6, when God brings the flood judgment with Noah. Water covers the earth in judgment. Think of Moses taking Israel through the Red Sea, and there's a watery judgment as the water covers Pharaoh and his armies. Or think of that removal of judgment to the new creation. Revelation 21, when the judgment on the old creation is removed, then we hear there was no sea. Watery judgment is gone. Finally, Genesis 1-2 speaks of a darkness that prevailed, which I mentioned that. There was a darkness over the face of this watery covering. And throughout Scripture, we see that whenever darkness prevails, it's a scene of judgment. Like you saw in Jeremiah 4.23, a scene of judgment. Hell is spoken of as a place of darkness. The sky turns black at the cross, at the judgment of Christ on our behalf. So, as a result of that, there are scholars who take these facts and read them back into Genesis 1-2 and argue that something must have gone wrong between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. They sometimes refer to it as a gap theory, that there's some kind of fall and sin. They usually posit the fall of the angels, and then God has judged the creation in 1-2. But that's really an error in reading this text. Genesis 1-2 is not, in context, if you read the context of Genesis 1, it is not a scene of God's judgment or of God's curse, but of God's blessing and his beauty. Genesis 1-2 is not about God's judgment. Genesis 1-2 is about bringing his creation from a state of chaos in the sense of a disorderly and uninhabited and water-covered, dark initial state to cosmos, an ordered formed, filled, and beautiful state. Thus, these scholars are kind of reversing the point being made. They're reversing it. The point being made is that judgment for sin is spoken of in terms of rolling back God's good creation, bringing a curse where there is one's blessing of taking us from cosmos, order, goodness, beauty, and light, to chaos, disorder, ugliness, and darkness. But God's original creation was never going to stay in a chaotic state because it was not under judgment originally. It was not chaos as a species of judgment. It's kind of like you want to read those old theologies say, we distinguish. There's two kinds of chaos. Chaos as a result of judgment and chaos not as a result of judgment. But what is it? It's rather a species of God creating from a state of disorder to order. From God creating from a state of disorder to order. How do I know that? Because the text tells me that in more than one place. Look at Isaiah 45 and verse 18. I've shown you this text already. I think in the first sermon perhaps. But let's look there again. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God. 
who formed the earth and made it. He established it. Now notice, he did not create it empty, for he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. The very purpose of his creation is to inhabit it. Not to leave it formless and void as if it's under some kind of judgment, but to form it and fill it, to beautify it, to order it. And that leads to my second point. What was God doing in the initial state of creation? So if the initial state of creation is formlessness, void, darkness, or watery darkness, what is God doing in the initial state of creation? Look at Genesis 1-2 again. What was he doing in this initial state? Look at the second half of verse 2. And the Spirit of God... I take this to be the Holy Spirit. Take that because of its use in Psalm 33.6. We could keep going through the Old Testament, New Testament passages, but this is the breath of God, the wind of God. It's the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God was carefully bringing order and beauty. That's what he was doing in the initial state of creation. Carefully bringing order and beauty. God was completing, finishing, perfecting what he had begun How do I know that? Look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1. Not only from Isaiah 45, 18, and God's purpose to form and inhabit, but Genesis 2 verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth, that language is coming right out of verse 1 of chapter 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. So when we talk about formlessness and void, or uninhabitable and uninhabited, and we talk about a watery covering and darkness, what we're talking about is incompletion, not judgment. It's a chaos as a result of the fact that God hasn't yet completed his work. You're about to hear about the completion, not the chaos that happens due to sin and judgment in which God starts to decreate things, if you will. God finished his work of creation. The initial creation was uninhabitable and uninhabited and dark and watery, not due to judgment, but due to incompletion. God was not yet finished. You might say we're being told that God is actively involved in creating and caring for his creation. He doesn't just set it into motion and sort of sit back and watch. He's actively involved. God was not yet finished. You're being told that. He is no distant creator. He is caring and near, actively at work. This language for hovering over is interesting. Look, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Moses uses this language again. If you keep your hand there, Moses uses it again near the end of the Pentateuch, this five-scrolled book I told you about in Deuteronomy 32. So look there, Deuteronomy 32, this notion of hovering over. Due to the chaos of judgment, it's getting harder for me to see the text. I'm going to put on some glasses See, what's happening is things are getting fuzzy and just now happening. (laughs) I need to see the distinctions so it's ordered and I can read it. Deuteronomy 32, 10. He found him in a desert land. Speaking of Israel here, he found him in a desert land in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters or hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. Israel was the apple of God's eye. Israel was the object of his love and delight, and the Lord cared for Israel. He cared for them, and he watched over them like an eagle that stirs up its nest, like a bird that flutters over or hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them up on their pinions. This is like the care of a mother bird as the chicks hatch. 
So God is, if you notice the language, the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of this uninhabitable and uninhabited watery darkness like a mother bird caring for its young as it hatches. God is not speaking about judgment in Genesis 1. It's speaking about God's loving care for his creation as he completes his work. The Spirit of God is present, making it beautiful. Thomas Aquinas, who I've referenced before, who I think of all of the men I've been reading on creation, I've been reading a lot of them, back to Augustine anyway, and Aquinas, etc. I think Aquinas in the Summa, he probably talks about creation better than anybody else I've read. And he speaks of this initial creation as having sort of three states that correspond to three beauties that God will answer them with. Essentially, we read these kind of three facts about creation, uninhabitable, uninhabited, and watery darkness, and then we hear God answer in Genesis 1, 3 and following with three beauties in the ways he beautifies the creation. I want to show you what I think Aquinas is rightly arguing. Let's consider these three beauties. What are they? The first beauty is this. The darkness and watery veil are beautified by the light and the separation of the waters. They're beautified by the light coming in and the separation of the waters. That all happens in the first three days, days one through three. So look at Genesis 1, 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. So it was darkness and God brought in the light. And he distinguished the light from the darkness. We'll look at that in a minute. Look at verse 7. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. So he separates the water of the sea from the sky. Look at verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. So he separates or distinguishes between the water of the seas and the earth. And so what you have is light coming into darkness that was the original state. And you have the watery veil that was covering everything being removed. And so there's a darkness that's removed and a watery veil that's removed. And so what Aquinas argues is this is a kind of beautification of the creation as God brings light in and removes the watery veil that kept us in darkness. That's the first beauty we read. What's the second beauty is forming. So remember it was unformed or uninhabitable. Now there's a forming that is in days one through three. So I'm just going to read days one through three together. I want you to hear the forming. Let's look at verses 3 through 5 first. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated. Now notice the distinguishing that happens. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. So light and darkness are separated and distinguished. And it's good. Now look at verse 6. We'll talk about the separation and distinction of sky and sea. You have a forming. Do you guys see the forming happening? Light and darkness. Now you're going to see sky and sea. So it's not just that light comes in. It's not just that a watery veil covering everything is removed. It's that you now have a forming of distinct bodies, if you will. So the separation of sea and earth, verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. Each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. 
The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. So there's a separation of sky and sea, a forming of these distinct bodies, a separation of sea and earth or land. So there's a forming of these bodies, and you even begin to read the beginning of filling or of inhabiting, beautifying with these trees and vegetation. But the first three days form. They form largely. Note that in bringing in light and creating ordered distinction, there's a creating of beauty. God calls those distinctions good. Dr. Michael Morales was here teaching this week. I asked him to come teach biblical theology, and he did by teaching the Pentateuch, the first five books, and it was glorious for the students who had the chance to sit through it. But one of the things he pointed out was that we live in a culture that wants to erase distinctions because we believe that brings about peace. That we erase distinctions between men and women. I mean, there's lots of them. You guys know we could go down the list. We think that somehow brings about peace, yet God calls distinctions good. And really our attempts to erase those distinctions are only serving to bring about chaos in our nation. It's actually the ordered distinctions of creation that brings about beauty and peace. And when judgment comes... Those ordered distinctions begin to be decreated, rolled back into chaos. Let's turn to the third beauty. So we have the beauty of light and the removing of the watery darkness and the beauty of forming. Let's look at the beauty of filling in days four through six. What God formed in days one through three fills in days four through six. God distinguished light and darkness on day one. Remember that? He formed. And God filled it, listen, with sun, moon, and stars on day four. Look at verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So he separates or distinguishes light and darkness, forming, and then he fills it with sun, moon, and stars. God distinguished the sky above from the waters below on day two. And then on day five, look at what happens. He fills it with birds and fish, verse 20 through 23. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. So on day one, he separates light from darkness forming. And on day four, he fills it with sun, moon, and stars. On day two, he separates the sky from the ocean. On day five, he fills it with birds and fish. On day three, he distinguishes between earth and sea he formed. And on day six, he fills it with animals and man. So look at Genesis 1.24. And we'll read all the way to chapter 2, verse 1. 124. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, 
after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every green plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. So God created all things with order and beauty. In fact, we might even argue that while I believe Genesis 1 is a historical narrative, and I don't want to take from that at all, you can sort of see a kind of poetic beauty to this narrative that comes through. His creation of the cosmos was good and beautiful, and he blessed that creation. And why did he do all this? Why create everything and bless it, particularly where he slows down in day six and has this kind of almost a contemplation, not that God really is contemplating, please don't misunderstand, but it it reads like a sort of contemplation where God is saying, Let's make man in our image. And it's a long process in which he sort of deliberates on that. Why does he then focus in on us? Why create us? Why create all these things? Why create us? Why do he do it all? Why beautify it the way he did? Look at Genesis 2, 2 through 3. You can't miss the seventh day because really all the other six lead to it. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. That's the work of creation. It's not like he's done doing anything. He's done creating that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, it's the only day that gets blessed, and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Why did God create all this? So that we might enjoy Sabbath rest with him. He did it so we would have the privilege of worship. The whole of creation was made as a temple for God's glory. Isaiah 66, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. It's a temple for his glory, the whole of creation. We were created, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism rightly says in question one, what is the chief end or purpose of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever in eternal Sabbath rest. We were created to sing his glorious praises in the joy of his glorious presence forever. So we were created for, yet we sinned, we rebelled, we marred God's good creation. Our hearts turned inward on our part ourselves. We questioned his goodness, and God's curse came upon the earth. And when you read the curse account in Genesis 3, which I won't now, and when you see the fallout that happens throughout the rest of Scripture, you recognize that our sin and God's curse for our sin is bringing a kind of decreation, a kind of unraveling of the true and the good and the beautiful, an unraveling of the cosmos and a bringing in of chaos, of judgment, of darkness, of disorder. So here's the question. What hope could there be for rebellious creatures like us? This is an important one to stop and consider. You read the framing, this glorious God who creates the heavens and the earth and with a kind of care like a mother bird over her chicks, God 
beautifies it and orders it and makes these distinctions and brings about a kind of harmony and peace and creates us so that we might enjoy him and enjoy his good creation. And he declares it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. Just revel in me and who I am and the truth you see revealed about me and the things that have been made. And we, by the deception of the serpent who comes in and says, hey, you know what? I know God said you can have all this good, but there's one thing he's holding back from you. Is he really good? And we rebelled. Wicked creatures. Turn in ourselves. You guys know you do it on a daily basis. I do it on a daily basis. I forget who God is. I focus on who I am and my little problems that are happening. I lose sight of him and what he's up to. Rebellious creatures. What hope could there be for rebellious creatures like us? Well, the God who created us graciously promised to redeem us. As we walk through Genesis 1 and 2, we're going to come to Genesis 3 and our sin What's remarkable is when God comes and confronts Adam and Eve and then the serpent in the garden, the first word from the Lord of curse is upon the serpent and is a promise of grace to us. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is a seed of the woman who's coming who will take us from the chaos our sin has brought by way of curse Back to blessing, back to cosmos, back to ordered beauty, the way things were supposed to be. He promised to send that seed of the woman who would save us and restore us. That's why we read what we do in Luke 1. So you can just turn to Luke 1. You guys know this scene as Mary learns of her blessing to be the mother of the Lord Jesus, the seed of the woman who would come to redeem humanity, the son of God who would become incarnate, if you will, take humanity to himself. We read of the scene, look at Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. As an aside, so would all of us. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. See, God is gracious toward you, Mary. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. That name means the Lord saves. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. He's the Son of the Most High. If you remember, the Most High from Melchizedek is the one who created and possesses the heavens and the earth as Melchizedek blesses Abraham. He'll be called the Son of the Most High, the creator and possessor of the heavens and the earth, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will be the Davidic king whom we've waited for all these years, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, that is Israel who comes from Abraham's line. So you remember the promise of the seed of the woman is passed down to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then through Jacob to the tribe of Judah, and from the tribe of Judah to the house of David. And he's going to be from that line. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. He will hover over your womb, flutter over you. 
This Greek word used here is the same Greek word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of Genesis 1-2. The same spirit who hovered over the womb of creation in its embryonic form that we read about in Genesis 1-2. The same spirit who hovered over that creation is hovering over the womb of Mary as Christ is an embryonic form, for he is the seed of the woman who will bring about the new creation. So the Holy Spirit, if you will, is hovering over the old creation that was originally glorious and beautiful and ordered with distinctions that has fallen into chaos due to our sin. That same Holy Spirit is now hovering over the one who is in himself bringing about the new creation. He is God, our Redeemer, and we look to him That's what we do. We look to Jesus for salvation. We look to him to restore order and peace to this fallen and chaotic world. We look to him so that we might have peace with God. Those who believe and are justified, Romans 5.1, have peace with God. That's our objective state. Yet we also have peace with God subjectively. He stills our chaotic hearts and minds with his grace. And thus in Christ we sing God's praises. So when we come to the book of Revelation, we're singing praises, if you look at those scenes, in the heavenly throne room, to God as our creator and to God as our redeemer. We also sing in the heavenly throne room scene to God as our daily provider, if you will. So we sing of creation, providence, redemption, and even consummation. But I have one question left that returns us to our introduction. Why are we creatures who sing? Why specifically do we sing as creatures? That's what we're found doing in Revelation, the consummation of all things. When you find in Revelation 4, 5, you go through multiple passages. We're singing, blessed is the lamb who was slain. Why are we singing? Let me take a step back. We need to understand that the created order exists in two states. I told you about that. Cosmos, chaos. Ordered distinctions that are beautiful. Chaos, disorder, ugliness, darkness. Chaos is disorder and confusion. So when sin, suffering, plague, turmoil, war, and death come, we feel the disorder and the confusion of the fallen and cursed creation. When you see the plague that we dealt with, whatever we want to call COVID, around the earth, you felt and saw the disorder, the confusion, the darkness that has come about because of the curse. When you saw what happened in Afghanistan recently, you saw the same. We see the marring of creation, harmony, order, the disruption of peace. And we refer to those moments in life as dark. We refer to them as chaotic. Or we speak about the ugliness of it all, don't we? I also said there's this state of cosmos. The well-ordered, beautifully distinguished, and harmonious whole. So when we see things like, for example, a young man who stands up to open the door for a young lady... We think cosmos, that's well-ordered distinction, it's beautiful. Or a couple who's been happily married for 50 years. You've been at a wedding where they have the dance floor and everybody's on there and they have the couple stay on and then they vacate the floor based on the years of marriage and you get to the couple that's been married 50, 60 years and there they are dancing on the dance floor together and you can't think of anything but that's beautiful. A wedding between a young man and a young woman, it's beautiful. A healthy newborn baby in the arms of its mother, The birth scene, (laughs) chaos followed by beauty or cosmos, right? It's beautiful. The starry sky that you see through a telescope or when you see images of the Milky Way, the human cell through a microscope, glorious moments in sports when a team comes together and does something triumphant, 
When you see a great painting, when you hear great music, you feel the order and the goodness and the beauty of it all. And those moments are enlightening and joyful, and we refer to those moments as right and good and beautiful. Herman Bovink, a Protestant scholar, says this about art and music. Art in all its works and ways conjures up an ideal world before us in which the discords of our existence on earth are purged in a gratifying harmony. Thus, a beauty is disclosed which in this fallen world has been obscured by the wise but is discovered to the simple eye of the artist. And because art thus paints for us a picture of an other and higher reality, it is a comfort in our life. It lifts the soul up out of consternation and fills our hearts with hope and joy. Now think of music specifically. And it's what does music do? Music at its core consists of distinct numbers and intervals, frequencies and sound waves. And they all work together to create rhythm and harmony and balance. Thus, we're creatures who sing precisely because it is in music that we're in some way able to capture harmony and order. Or maybe we can say that we capture beauty in a manner that we cannot capture it in science or philosophy. We can capture what is true and good in those disciplines, for sure, but we can express it in music in a manner that connects more deeply with what we are. We're image bearers of the God of ordered distinctions and beauty, of the God of the cosmos, and thus music has great power upon us. Plato actually, I know in sermons quoting Plato, but here we go. Plato actually commented on why music has such power, and I think he's right. Because more than anything else, rhythm and harmony find their way into the inmost soul and take strongest hold upon it. I think that's right. I think that's why when I walk into a hospital room of a family who just lost a loved one, the thing people most want is to sing. When I walked into the hospital room, Jason and I and Chris Short at the time who was with us, walked into the hospital room of the Hepners when they had lost Quinlan, their baby who was stillborn. We walked in there and there was Quinlan in Tammy's arms and the family was all gathered there, rightly crying, grieving. We walked in and asked, essentially, you know, you wonder as a pastor, what do I even do here? I'm without resource. I just have nothing to offer you. I'm standing here. We walked in there. You know what they wanted? They asked us to come prepared with hymns to sing. Can you come with some hymns? They had ones they wanted. So we showed up at the hospital, and they wanted to sing hymns in that moment of chaos and discord. In that moment that is ugly and dark, and they did sing. And in the midst of that chaos and that ugliness and death, they brought harmony and beauty and light to that whole area of the hospital. It was glorious and moving. It was beautiful. What's happening in a scene like that that makes us want to sing? It's because of the discordant and chaotic reality of sin and death in the midst of the ugliness of all that. In that moment, we long for harmony, order, beauty. Specifically, that which comes by song that gives voice to the precious truths of the gospel and the God of the gospel. And that kind of song has a way of lifting our souls and filling our hearts. We sing of our creator who made all things true and good and beautiful. We sing of our sin that marred such beauty, such goodness. And we sing of the same God who is our redeemer, who is making all things new, who is reconciling heaven and earth in his son and restoring order and truth and goodness 
and beauty. And in singing like this, we find ourselves doing and becoming that which was intended from the beginning. That's why Christians sing when we gather. That's why the Lord, superintended by the Spirit, to put in the middle of our Bibles 150 Spirit-inspired songs. Songs that are songs of lament and songs of praise. It's what we do as people. We sing. What is it that we're singing about as Christians? What is it that's moving us to song? Well, simply, it's the glorious beauty of the Lord in all his works and words. Christians, may we lift up our voices and sing the glories of our beautiful God, our creator, our provider, and our redeemer. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work in us, among us. Christ would be present to bless us in the preaching of the word, that we would lift up our voices and sing our God, that we would sing about you, the one who created all things, ordered, beautiful, good the one who saved us in your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. May we look to him and give thanks and sing. In Jesus' name, amen.